0: Welcome to High Action. I'm Perry Smith. I'm Will Brom. I'm John Story. And together, we're the New West Guitar Group. On today's episode, we're going to feature Portland-based guitarist Dan Balmer. A special thanks to our Patreon
1: members and our sponsors who make this podcast possible. For more information on high action and how you can get involved, please visit www.newwestguitar.com slash high action. What's up, everybody? Hey. Welcome. Hey. Welcome to episode two of the High Action Podcast. You're listening to the voice of Will Brom right now. I'm joined by <laughs> Perry Smith in Yo. Brooklyn. Yo. John Story. My... uh neighbor uh, just a, about a mile and a half away in Burbank. That's right. John, what's going on with you?
0: Man, things are good. I'm just uh, gearing up here for more recording, more stuff at yeah. my computer desk. It's bizarre to know that the audience is on the other side of this screen and I have to just keep creating music for this uh, this audience, I guess. But man, it's been great. I'm, I'm just stoked to hang with you guys. It brings me back to all the times that we're on the road together.
1: It is. It's a virtual hang for sure. Perry, what's going on with you? Hey, I'm out here in
2: Brooklyn. It's the fall. Uh, we're now on our second episode. The response to the first one was great. Yep. So I'm just stoked to kind of get these interviews out and, um, you know, trying to keep up with everything with the music as it's going right now. I mean, I've had a few gigs, which has been cool, some outdoor stuff. I feel like it's fleeting. Uh, mm-hmm. Thankful to have some teaching and, you know, also just trying to spend time with my family raise my little boy and you know, is he growing a my, beard yet elevate <laughs> my plane too uh, he's not growing a beard yet you know, maybe maybe he will soon
1: what's his hair color looking like is it is it oh it's getting red. fiery red oh, oh yeah okay. it's definitely
2: red you know God bless him just like me he's a redhead which means you wear sunscreen you know every season all day every day <laughs> right
1: so John which guitar today have you played because you've got the rack of guitars so which which was your weapon of choice this actually morning?
0: yeah man i was on my l5 this morning and nice. um yeah yeah and and some days like i, I pulled out the epiphone casino uh, the other day which was really fun that's a guitar i've had since i was like an eighth grade which is crazy mm-hmm. um but yeah mm-hmm. man yeah it's playing a little playing a little l5 how about you man you've been on that marchione
1: yeah that's all i've been playing all week it's great i uh I swapped some pickups out and, you know, you guys know, I'm, I'm sure the listeners agree when you're stuck at home with this much time, your gear starts to get worked on mm-hmm. and, uh, it can be treacherous sometimes. Mm-hmm.
2: I, I lowered my action, but I raised my string gauge. So kind of under 175 yeah. Oh, yeah. What did you raise the gauge to 13? Oh man. It's nice and thick sound. Love it. Yeah, normally we had 12s, maybe, you know, whatever. Wow. but. Part of the talking to all these guys about their tones and stuff, a lot of them were talking about having heavier strings. And so I'm going back to it. I used to have 13s on there doing it again. Feels good.
1: I love getting to talk with the guys we've interviewed and just mm-hmm. getting all their little intricacies. And, and I think the cool thing is, is we all meet on this common plane of, you know, being music lovers and so many different stories, so many different paths that, that they've all taken And today's interviewee was no exception, someone super special, especially to John and I, uh, Pacific Northwest guitar player Dan Balmer.
2: Yeah, it was a great great interview. Just seeing the connection that he has to you and John, being that you were his former students, he really revels in your success. And I think he gets a lot of joy from that. The same kind of joy that he gets from throwing down the bandstand, I think he gets equally seeing you guys and your success. So it was really cool.
1: John, real quick, before we get into this interview, what's your number one Dan Balmer story?
0: Go. Oh man, when I used to call <laughs> him from my landline, cause I didn't have a cell phone yet, I'd call him up at his house and and say, hey, I'm coming down to Jimmy Max tonight, see you there. I'd always call him just to make sure that he was actually gonna be there. Cause some weeks he, he wouldn't be there. He'd be off playing a gig and he he'd call back and he's like, you want me to put a gyro order in for you? You know, they they call it, <laughs> it's called a gyro, but he calls them gyros. Um, right. So, and, and Jimmy Max Jimmy Mac was a Greek, they had Greek mm. food at that club and uh, it was really, really, really good gyros, but I'll never forget Ballmer being like, want me to put an order in for a gyro? So, yeah. Damn. You see.
2: If you say Jira out in New York, they won't serve you.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Man, well, if if you're not wearing Birkenstocks and driving a Subaru Outback, they won't serve you in the Northwest either.
1: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, I want to get into this interview because I think Dan is just such an inspirational leader and influential person for us. So without further ado, sit back, open up your ears and listen to our interview with the wonderful Dan Balmer. John and I have a huge connection with you, starting, in my case, right back from the moment I became aware of jazz guitar, seeing you play at Jimmy Max and taking lessons with you and having you drive me to the Max station after the lessons. Yeah. (laughs) But I was just wondering, talk to you a little bit about your past and attending Lewis and Clark College, and you started teaching there very young while you were still a student and you basically have continued teaching there ever since
3: well i started out you know like everybody
1: in back in my era and and
3: and and i always in my teaching try and clarify you know the beauty of starting in in the era i did which was that you had to figure everything out yourself and the, the discovery of a single new note was like a big deal and i'm sure i told you and john this in lessons like for me when i kind of figured out the difference between minor and dorian from the a-string you know that was like a revelation you know that took months to discover and years to digest and you know and my students were like oh i was just looking up the altered scale on the internet after their second lesson <laughs> you know, oh my god you know and that's why i always say to people you know i i wish you could take each scale we learn and go to a deserted island for a month and play only that and so i grew up you know listening to Jimi hendrix and credence clearwater and the birds and and so a lot you know really the same influences i feel like that the, the guys I sort of admired as I started becoming professional, the you know, same things that, you know, people like Frizzell and Matheny and Schofield obviously all had these different influences of rock and pop music as well as West Montgomery and Jim Hall and Joe Pass and Charlie Christian and everybody else. So I started, you know, and I came up in an era, uh, I hate to say it, when when there was a lot of interest in jazz music and jazz could function as a as the kind of you know as a commercial enterprise the way rock and pop and country do which is not the way classical does and so you know you would play at clubs you know even at an early age you'd play at clubs and there would be people there and they would be there because they liked jazz or the club liked to have jazz and it wasn't like a lot of the time right now And i know people and they're like i've got to get people out to my gig or i'll never play again you know it used to be like the club brought people in because people were into jazz and you were just band that night Mm -hmm. wasn't so much pressure. So I played my first gig, I think, in a bar when I was 15 and played in a coffee shop when I was 16. And I know I made like $2.30 in a bagel and uh, cream cheese. And I started playing uh, in my later teens, like we all do. You meet some people who play or you meet somebody, you know, some other cats, you know, a guy. I know a guy at another high school who's into jazz or this guy plays, has a Wurlitzer electric piano. So we had formed our first bands, and I was playing with some cool guys when I was 16. They were writing songs at 13, and you know, kind of these pre-math rock type guys. And uh, so I started gigging at you know 18, 19, which you know people did back then a lot because there wasn't a lot of great players. And uh, and I was figuring it out, and I got those opportunities early on. I went to Lewis and Clark because my father taught there, and I got a degree in economics. And so I started playing and playing gigs early on. Uh, In Portland and was playing with Ron Steen and playing the best people in town when I was 19 and 20. And by the time I was 23, I started playing with Tom Grant, uh, a really popular smooth jazz pianist. And we spent 10 years, you know, playing five nights a week, you know, making what we'd have to say was good money. You have a lot of writing credits with Tom Grant, too, I believe. Yeah, I, and, those, and Tom was j- gracious with that. You know, he'd put my songs on his records, and those records would sell 60,000 records, 70,000 records. And, you you know, your songs would be on TV shows and in movies. I mean, yeah, man. Uh, you know, and that's how they used to get songs for TV shows and movies. It wasn't like there is now with Taxi and all that. So I wrote a lot for Tom, and I got a lot of great exposure with Tom. And I actually made a good living with Tom. You know, I, I always talk about or people always talk about I bought my first house when I was in my 20s and uh, you know if you're trying to be economically solvent you know I mean that's you know, you've got to sort of uh, take advantage of the opportunities you have as early as you can mm-hmm. uh, and then toured with Tom and and uh, wrote songs and had my own bands and started making my own records and, and did what everybody does played in wedding bands and Played high level jazz for no money and played crappy music for good money and played good music for decent money and played <laughs> bad music for every possible music. combination. It's yeah, yeah. all that stuff we do. And, and, uh, and I feel very blessed for every minute of it. And I had a realization in my 20s in Chicago with Tom Grant. We were playing the Cubby Bear Lounge uh, right by Wrigley Field. I just realized, you know, you better enjoy every minute of this your whole life. And because and, I'm sure we all have had friends who've had big gigs that are miserable and playing great places and not having fun. And I just realized, boy, I'm going to just love every day of this. And as you know, I played at Jimmy Max three nights a week for 13 years at the main Portland Jazz Club. And I, every night I came to play, and I loved being there, and I loved getting to be a guitar player, and I always have. And so I just haven't missed a minute of it you know i haven't let a minute of it go by where i was like oh i'm sick of this or oh these cats aren't that good or oh this sucks you know i've always felt like i'm playing my guitar i get to do this i love it and i'm going to love it every time i do it and whatever it is i'm going to love it i feel like you know among the things a friend of mine once said of all the compliments somebody gave me i i believe this is true he said i've never seen you not play your hardest and i feel like every time i've played i've honored that opportunity
1: we so, would attest to that.
3: We agree. Well, no, I mean, I, know. Yeah. I mean, it's sort of like you. I can't help it, you know. It's, but you know, I think that's a trait of of good musicians. But just a lot of times, people, I think, kind of take it for granted, or they're like, "Oh, this is below me," or "This gig sucks," or "This is lame." And I just, you know, no gig sucks and no gig is lame. Uh, even, when, even if they suck and they're lame, you don't, you don't <laughs> play it like, you don't, you don't approach it that you gotta way. you got to bring and the music. Man. All, yeah, you and you, honor, you, you honor the opportunity and you honor the spirit of the thing. So, and so for, you know, 40 years, I probably averaged playing four nights a week oh. for the last 40 years. And that's what I've loved to do. And yes, yeah. we
1: would agree. You are a shining example of someone who goes out and plays week after week, night after night. And you learn things that way. You just can't learn if you're inside uh, practicing, recording at home, et cetera. Uh, How much more common was that maybe back in the 80s or 90s as opposed to now?
3: Yeah, I mean, that's how I learned to play. I'm not a great practicer. I'm a great practicer on the bandstand, which is a, <laughs> a bad quality, but I've gotten away with it. You know, I, I learn when I play. And I learn when I play with people because there's all this stuff that I'm always trying to input. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't know, you know, and, and if you just practice, you know, you just build up input. Oh, because yeah. I need to get it to the gig and input it and try it out in real time in real life and go, oh, how did that sound? How did that, you know, and, and to have that thing happen in my mind where that process occurs in real time, you know, I need to be at the gig to do that. And, and that's what every night, you know, five, four or five nights a week of my life, I go home having done that, you know, play good, playing good or okay or not so good. Uh, I got to walk the path.
1: I'd like to ask some of your, your early influences, even just sifting through your discography and listening to all the different voices that, you bring yeah. musically across different genres with different guitars. What do you feel some of like your major Influences because you're obviously a very open-minded listener and yeah. enjoy yeah. music. I just, music. I was just
3: listening to Kam- Kamasi Washington today. And I don't know if you guys ever listen mm-hmm. to him, but yeah, i try, You know, I try. I try you know, I stretch every morning, and I, so I try and listen to something. I was just thinking, I need to. You know, I just try and put it on random and and, and learn something. You know, I, and there was so you know the thing that people can't imagine these days, and you know, you don't like to sound like your grandfather. But, you know, what you can't imagine, I, you know, I, did, I introduced Pat Martino at the Portland Jazz Festival a few years back. And I went, you know, when I was young, you know, then I went to Boston and visited my brother and I saw Pat playing in a basement club. This is, you know, this is in 1980, 1980, 1975, 77. I saw Pat Martino playing with Bobby Rose. You know, Pat on his early records played with rhythm guitar. Right. So it was, it was this other guy, Bobby Rose, who just comped and then Pat just shredded. It. it was really cool. And I told Pat this, like, oh, I saw you playing with Bobby Rose. You know, it was funny. But at any anyway, rate, I told him my introduction to Pat Martino, you know, I heard about Pat Martino. And then it turned out somebody I knew had a Pat Martino record because you couldn't buy a Pat Martino record. I mean, because what record store? The record store only had this many jazz records, and it was Miles and Vince Giraldi and Kirby Mann. And, you know, you weren't going to get the Pat Martino. And, uh, Somebody lent me the Pat Martino record. but There's no way to copy a record. You know, so I listened to the record a bunch and then the person would be like, "You know, I really want my Pat Martino record." <laughs> so, I'd take it back and you know more Pat Martino. And when I introduced Pat, I I sort of went through this whole rap, you know, how uh, how special each thing you heard was and what you owned, you know. And I was telling somebody, actually, I said telling somebody yesterday, you know, and, and you know this or not, but the old days having how much pepper you had was a sign of your wealth, and the gentleman would carry around a bag of pepper, and wherever they go, they sort of set it on the table, you know, how much pepper do you have? It's kind of like, you know, your fancy new Driving cell phone, or, or your, yeah, exactly, you park the <laughs> Tesla there instead of the whatever. Do uh, you have your pepper? Well, it used to be, uh, how many records do you have? You know, well, I have 13 records, you know, I had 29 records. And so you. Were, somebody said, oh, what well, stood to mind, we were playing at Barbara by Horace Silver or something. Mm. And they were saying, oh, well, what record is that? I, I, I've never heard anybody play this but me and the Cats. I go, you know, what? I go. I only had 17 records. One of them was not going to be Horace Silver. I had to have guitar player records, you know. So the world was like that. So who my influences were, were Larry Coryell, because my brother Paul bought me one of his records. Mm-hmm. the first jazz. And then my father bought me a record called The Great Guitars of Jazz that had a little sampling. And it had Herb Ellis, it had Barney Kessel, it had, you know, uh, Oscar Moore. It had Tal Farlow. And then at the end of each side, it had a West Montgomery song mm-hmm. from that from the Move for the Move West record with the big band. And the West things were just killing. And yeah. I found one of those tracks, "Senza Fine," and that I had listened to when I was young over and over. And I hadn't listened to it in forty years. And I listened to it, and I just about burst into tears. I mean, it's just so perfect. You listen to that West stuff. It's just from the you know, from your lips to God, or whatever the expression is. I mean, from God to His hands. So I mean, I only you know. So Wes, because he was on that record, you know. Larry Coryell, you know. Then a friend of mine bought you know Body Talk by George Benson, <laughs> you know. And then it's all over, you know. Just God Almighty, <laughs> you know. And it's Extrapolation by John McLaughlin, because I had that. Do so you guys know that record? <laughs> a little. A Extrapolation. Little. Mm-hmm. It's a work of absolute genius. It's his what first year record. Was that? It's, it's from 1969 with John Sermon and Tony Oxley and, and some, it may be Dave Holland or something, but he's playing like a Gibson Hummingbird or something with a pickup in it. It's an insanely great record. Wow. Mm-hmm. Extrapolation. And, but it's not the kind of record you'd ever listen to more than once as a teenager, unless you didn't have any other records. You know. So I listened to it a thousand times and it's, it's beautiful and, uh, and so unique and so innovative. So all those guys, everything I heard at my early years, and then Clarence White, who was a country western guitar player with the Birds, and I actually met him when I, this was my youth, when I was 13, I saw the Birds playing at Lewis and Clark in the gym, and he was standing there, and I went over (laughs) to him and said hi. And then, you know, anybody I could see, the guys around Portland, you know, there was a little coffee shop, and I'd go see, and there were some pretty good guitar players, my friend Cal Scott, and guy named Charlie Croft who was really good you know guys were starting to shred then and, and shredding in Dorian you know <laughs> and just sort, sort of doing. so anyway uh, you know uh, at the very beginning it was McLaughlin really Coriel and McLaughlin and I, I blame everything bad on my playing on Larry Coriel and and, <laughs> and, and and probably everything good And you know I mean really he was a huge influence and I barely met him once you know I, I have a lot of you know there's still a lot of that feel in my playing that he has yeah. because he was sort of like a guy who played rock and then started playing it against jazz settings.
1: Well, in addition to touring with Tom Grant and Diane Schur, as John and I can attest to, you've had countless of your own projects coming to mind, Go By Train, a lot of your trio playing, playing with Mel Brown, whether it's the organ trio or the quartet. I'd just like to talk about some of those projects and seeing you at Jimmy Max, Um, whether it's with any of those groups was just a part of, of John and I's childhood. So we'd just like wow. to dig into that. You know, I always wanted to have my own music because I always felt
3: that was what we're what the meaning of what that's why you would be a jazz musician was to create your own music and composing. And I would always tell people, you know, nobody you name that you like is not a great composer. In other words, the reason we love Schofield and Matheny and Frizzell and yeah, I mean, the reason the McLaughlin, the reason they're sort of guys like that and, and on are at the top, or they're not only great players, but being a great player is is not maybe as hard as being a great player and a great composer and a visionary composer. Yes. You know, so in other words, I you know, you know, people say to me, Oh, you play as good as so and so and I'll often say, Yeah, you know, I could probably play the guitar as good as so and so, but I haven't written thirty records of amazing stuff like they have. Right. You know, so composing so I always felt like composing, leading your own band, conceptualizing music was a big part of it, and that was what I thought being a jazz musician was, and that was I was sort of at odds with the jazz establishment in that, you know, that I didn't ever feel like jazz was some target you were trying to hit, like, oh, this is jazz, you made it, oh, you're speaking the jazz language, or that's a jazz feel, you know, I always felt like jazz was, you know, I mean, jazz was each guy's thing, you know, jazz was Coltrane, jazz was Miles, jazz was John McLaughlin, jazz was George Benson, jazz was Keith Jarrett, jazz was Ah, uh, Terry Rippedale, as was, um, you know, Paul Desmond, and uh, so I felt like that was what it was about, I was trying. So I've always had my own bands, and then as you get older economically, uh, you know, you kind of realize if you're the leader, you know. If you're ever in a band and i'm sure you all have been you know where there's a leader who's making more than the rest of the band you kind of realize that you know being a band leader is a good idea as far as determining your economic outcome and determining the music and the setting so i always led trios of my own you know with george mitchell and carlton jackson and then i've had trios with damian erskine yep. and alan jones we have a trio called mm-hmm. trio uncontrollable and we play and they just they take my music and uh, shred it into different directions. But that's fabulous because Alan and Damien, that's like wonderful rhythm section. I have a group called Caminhos Cruzados that you yes. saw, you know, and I'm playing with Flamenco guitarists where we play all kind of, you know, a little bit off the beaten path Brazilian music. Playing with Mel, we still play with the organ group, the group with Tony Passini and Ed Bennett. You know, Go By Train, I loved because that was a collaboration with Clay Gyverson. It's like you guys have. It's really nice to have a collaboration where Absolutely. it's not all on you, as you know, from. Uh, You know, making your own records will, uh, you know, if it's your record, (laughs) you you said when you played in town that your drummer helped book some gigs and stuff. Oh, of course. No, but it's hard when it's, if it's just you. So collaboration with Blake Iverson and having somebody else write the tunes and somebody else so play, it's great. So I, you know, and now I play with Trio Subtonic, which we just did a a live stream. That's a great young groove band, an amazing drummer who was playing Tyrone Hendrix and that's that's sort of like i'm sort of the Schofield to their Modesky martin but i always say i'm, I'm the cranky old guy um, <laughs> i'm the cranky old guy i'm not that Schofield's cranky in, in my experience but you know i could be the kind of grumpy looking old guy and they can be the young guys and uh actually i said there and I, I thought this was funny but you you may or may not we we're about to go on and, and you know as you get older you change and i said well before we go on i, I gotta hit the bathroom and they're like okay be quick can i go Schofield probably has to hit the bathroom before he goes out with the desk, you know, and see, I understand these things change. So, so I love playing with them, you know, it was it, great being a sideman with Diane Sure, you know, uh, you know, I, you know, toured with Joey Francesco and Monty mm-hmm. Spit a little bit, uh, a fair with Les McCann and Javon Jackson, Karin Allison, you know, a lot with Diane. Uh, I've just loved every opportunity, you know, I love every chance to have to learn the music and, you know, and you guys do all this, obviously you know different musics different people different guitar different expectation you know here you know there's a sax player in town named dan walensky i play with some you know and he's one of these guys who doesn't care what you do you know and i love playing with because he sort of creates a space you know and most of the time i don't know how it is for you guys but i'm sure a lot of time you know we're trying to play the gig and keep the gig but uh i love it you know when somebody says oh yeah just play you know and you can do all you know you can really play i mean how much of the time do we get to really just play? And I often find in these other projects, like as a leader of the Dan Balmer Trio, where I'm taking care of the money and the business of the songs and doing the talking, and you can often play more and better when you're not the leader, you know, even though it, you know, because you can just let it hang out. Right. So I, I love being a part of all these different things and, and my versatility. If I have one, you know, my, probably, my, probably my, my best feature of my playing is my versatility of being able to play a lot of different styles and of course you know a lot of people can do that now being able to try and fit in and be authentic in each thing that's that's why I love doing that I wouldn't want to go play the same gig every night for you know I wouldn't want to just play with an organ group every night but I wow. love to play with an organ group and I wouldn't want to just play uh, you know in any setting so I love I love the opportunity I love being you know I always tell my students be good enough to get the gig you know you know for the different styles of music be be good enough that they'll they'll hire you, and, and then you can learn the gig. You know, then you can learn it. And so for me, you know, both of the Bell Brown gigs I had came when, and honestly speaking, when Dan Family, who's obviously a great guitar player, moved back to Ohio with his wife, and he was out on the road a lot. And they were like, "Well, we need a guitar player." And you know, I, I you know, there are other good guitar players, and I was lucky to get both the Bell Brown quartet with the organ and the quartet with Tony Puccini, and. Uh, you know, I was good enough to get the gigs and really grew into them. And that's, I spent my life trying to get into gigs that I can grow into.
1: I think let's hone in on that a little bit. You, you guys would play every week at both the old Jimmy Max. Yeah. Um, I remember you describing when that location was closing, you're saying, we're moving to a better location now where the lights don't dim when you turn on the dishwasher. <laughs> I remember <laughs> you saying that. Um, I believe New West played at the old Jimmy Max before right. I joined. And then when, when Jimmy Max went to the new location, you guys were there constantly. And actually, my first New West gig ever was wow. at that Jimmy Max, which was bizarrely poetic. It was really surreal. But um, just, Ooh. you know, the scene yeah. that you made, that you guys curated, for me as a high schooler wanting to see live jazz, and I could watch the first set, but then after 9 p.m., it was 21 and over, so I'd have to leave. Um, but I mean, you know, you were a staple of of jazz in Portland, and yeah. I mean that was such a scene, you know. It was
3: an amazing. I mean, it was you know it was a confluence of things. It was a really amazing place, the Jimmy Max, and it's a real tragedy that it's gone. And uh, it was an amazing place, and it was the result of you know Jimmy Max' hard work and you know holding the line budget wise. You know, one you know for a jazz club to be successful, you need to have a owner that is. You know, people bitch about this stuff, but you know you need an owner that's tight, you know, or you're or you're done for. So uh, Jimmy himself, God bless him, you know, passed away. If he hadn't passed away, it would
1: be still happening. Mm-hmm. Maybe let's spin a track. Speaking of Jimmy Max and Mel Brown Quartet from the album Live an Evening with the Mel Brown Quartet, and I I gotta insert I was at this show. Oh wow! I believe you guys did two nights, right? yeah probably and so i was at one of them so i don't know if this exact take i was on but let's play some of your playing off of gone with the wind oh my god And again, you know, to me personally, like being at that show and remembering, like, all, it's it's super special. Oh, man, thank yeah. you so much. Of course, of course. Um, well, before really I pass awesome. it to John, I wanted to just kind of zone in a little more, talk about your teaching. And I mean, how much of an amazing educator you are, both as a jazz guitar teacher and just as an educator in general. I mean, I'm sure John can attest to this, but you really force us, the student, to draw out the real... Meaning and self in our playing? You know, well, the first thing I think about teaching is it's like coaching in the NBA. You know, it's a lot easier if you
3: have Michael Jordan on your team. You know, Phil Jackson was, you know, a better coach with Kobe and and Michael. Uh, You know, it's the horse. I always say it's the horses. It's like at Lewis and Clark when we have a jazz combo concert and uh, the bands sound really good. And I always think, well, it's the horses. You know, I mean, those guys are pretty good. It's going to sound pretty good. So I think about students. You know, particularly, I'm like, I'm always telling when I talk about students, I often talk about Will and John, and both you guys, and, and I go, well, you know, and these guys are like top guys in LA and getting around, known around the country and touring and, you know, and expected artists. And, you know, you guys are great. And, you know, I probably taught you guys less <laughs> than I do anybody else. So it's really the horses. I always tell my students, look, I tell you all the same thing. You know, so why is there Will Brom and John Story and, and, you know, you know, don't you know, it's you know, I'm doing the same thing with every student. You're you guys need to step it up. So, uh, (laughs) (laughs) you know, I go look here. I thought, you know, I told him exactly the same thing. Listen to that. So, I mean, I, you know, I I love I love the students and I really enjoy the interaction. You know, if I think about the people in my life that are my friends, almost a large percentage of them our past or current students, you know, and as I'm sure for all of us, you, a lot of the people that come to our gigs or buy our CDs are our are, are students, they're people that have seen us. But I have a huge number, uh, uh, you know, and, and students who keep in touch, you know, college students who are still in touch. And in teaching, you know, I have really my own method of teaching because I'm basically self-taught. And so I try and teach people exactly how I learned, which I think was a really great way to learn, which is the way you learn. If you really cared and you were trying to figure it out, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, uh, you know, we're really in a education oriented world these days. And so I try and in my lessons, I, I try and make people discover, you know, actually a funny thing happened before I taught my very first lesson, I think my friend, Mark Gutenberg who runs the percussion program at central Washington said, well, do you know, uh, you use the Socratic, Socratic method. Mm-hmm. And I said, what's that? And he said, well, that's where you ask questions. And I realized that I teach almost all my lessons without telling anybody anything. You know, I just ask, Mm -hmm. you know, well, what notes did we add to the pentatonic to make the major scale? Well, what numbers were they, you know? Well, I want to see you outline these. You know, I'm always asking. I'm always, I'm trying not to tell people anything. And in my very best lessons, I don't tell people anything. I just ask until they get to the right answer. So I want my students, I want people to still have some real life experience. Right now, it's very much like, Okay, now here's what's next. You know this, and now we'll do this. And you know this, and now you're ready for this. And I, so I try and, in our lessons, put some pressure on them. Like, hopefully, we all had, mm-hmm. or you, we probably had in our
1: lessons, where it's like, you oh, may not be able to play this tempo, but we're going to play it. Or Man, I, you I pulled the old mind milestones mind. on me, and I was just, I was horrified. <laughs> uh, so I try and keep a little bit of that old-fashioned, you know. Yeah.
3: Uh, so I, and I, my students, like I say, they're my... They're my friends. It's you guys, you know? It's yeah.
2: Today's episode of High Action is sponsored by Jeff Traugott Guitars. Jeff is a luthier based in Santa Cruz, California, and he brings an incredible quality of artistry and craftsmanship to the acoustic guitar. He only builds about 12 guitars a year, and he develops a very close relationship with each one of his customers. Together, he focuses on the tone and the playability that you want from the acoustic guitar. Here's a recording of me playing my TriGot acoustic. The playability is amazing, the tone is rich. So, for more information, check out TriGotGuitars.com.
0: You know, you were. You were a a deep, deep mentor to me, Dan. Like When I met you, I was a hick from Redmond, and I came over with my mom to see you and Dave Capteen play duo at that Chinese restaurant in Old Town. And here we were, my mom and I were the only ones there, and there you were playing this old 175, and my eyes were like, I was like, this is the guy I got to learn from right here. And you were so nice to me. And that mentorship that Will's talked about throughout the course of this podcast and something that it's been fun for us on high action is everyone's talked about this, how important the mentors were to to them. Many of the many of the guys your generation, you had a lot of guys that you looked up to, studied with and you did not hesitate. When I was 16 and we moved to we moved to Portland, you said, "Come down to Jimmy Max. You can only stay in there till seven, and then it's 21 and over." But we'll and then you and Mel and the guys started playing a half hour early, so me and John Singer and Tyson we could all come and watch you. And I just, man, it just means, I I just can't thank you enough. I wouldn't be doing any of this if it wasn't for you, man. You're like, you really were that cat. And do you feel like up until, of course, we're in the pandemic now and there aren't really live gigs, but um, that was hard to believe, Dan. That was almost 20 years ago now. We met 20 years ago. We met in 2000.
3: I remember it really, really well. I remember very well, you as a young
0: man. Yeah, but do do you (laughs) feel like a lot of the students in Portland these days, are still participating in this mentorship and we're coming to your gigs and sitting in or was that a special time because when i was you know i I
3: try and encourage that you know i just sent out a text to three kids who live in west lynn because i'm playing in west lynn tomorrow at a place they can sit out i go you can see if your parents will come out dinner but you could just come sit on the steps and watch so i mean i think we still you know there isn't a club like jimmy max right now where you know there is quite as big a a good scene like that, but I mean, I think you know, I am still reach out to my students and try and get them out and try mm-hmm. and have them come hang out. A lot of times, I'll have them sit in and just play a little tune, you yeah. know. And wherever I am, just yeah, come up and play a tune. So I'm, just, I'm still, I feel like I'm still mentoring. You know, people like people like you and Will are special in that you are, you know, you guys are going for it. You know, so it has to be a student that's going for it. You know, so you could be as mentoring as you want to be, and if there's no one to mentor, you can know, can't, you can't yeah. mentor them. You know, when John Stoll moved to Portland, I was 19 and he was probably 24 or 25. And I remember hearing him on the radio. And there was a thing on the radio on KBU or KMHD, KBU back then probably. And I go, if that's John Stoll, I quit. And uh, they go, that's John Stoll live in the studio. And I'm like, you know, shoot. Shoot, darn it, heck. You know, I can't quit. I better practice. But so I would go to John's house. And so the first time I went to play with John, and I'm sure you've all hung with John, and I brought over a half pound of coffee beans because he drank coffee like kind of as an offering, you know, and, and I hung with John and we played. And, and then, of course, John didn't drink coffee for the next 35 years. And now he drinks coffee again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Following John's diet is always tricky. But John was a guy, you know, for me, you know, not, not that he, he didn't influence my playing in the way that I play, but I you know loved him as a person and admired what he played and so much. And when I was young, Cal Scott was a guy who worked at a guitar store, and I would go down every Saturday and play with him, and he would sort of make time for this twerp kid, mm-hmm. and so I think we all have people who affect us, you know, whether we know it or not, you guys, you know, I remember our, I remember our lessons completely, I remember yeah. having you play Iris when you were by like 16, and you read the melody, and I tell my students to say, well, you know, when John's story came, you could read
0: that. <laughs> well, yeah, you you were intrigued because I was playing a lot of classical guitar, and you yeah, said, play, you something play something classically, and I, I played, I can't remember what it was, but but we were talking a lot about that, and I remember you talking a lot about me being out of my comfort zone, and, and I'd go sit down there at Jimmy Max, I'd be sweating bullets, man, getting up there playing Dahoud. Tony would call that tune, at, like, burning, burning, burning tempo. How does he know Dahoud,
3: is what I remember thinking. Yeah, it was <laughs>
0: Dahoud, you called Dahoud, um just softly. In the morning sunrise, but I was sweating bullets. My hands would get cold. I was playing that Epiphone Sheridan through your VHT amplifier. My mom would be there and she'd be mini-disking me, and you'd be in the back and I'd get done playing a tune. And you'd be like, Yeah, you know, just keep coming, sitting in, keep getting comfortable, stay out of your comfort zone, but keep coming and getting comfortable sitting in. And the year that you played the Mount Hood Jazz Festival, remember how over in Gresham at that hotel, all the artists stayed at that um, Best Western, right. Right, and you were right. pl- you were playing with Mary Catterly down in that restaurant downstairs, and and I was there, and I remember you were playing your your Benson Ibanez, which I love that guitar, and Ray Barretto walked in, right, and I of course over the moon. I mean, here's a guy who recorded it with Kenny Burrell on like my favorite jazz right. records, and with George Benson, and Ray was big tall guy, big hands. You looked at me and you were like, why don't you get up and play a tune, you know, in front of Ray, you know, and like you handed that guitar to me and I got up and played a tune with her. And I just again, that mentorship, man, and I just want to stress that to people who are listening, like you're not a lot of guys would be willing to do that and i'm trying to do that these days here in la with my students i'm having a hard time getting students out to certain gigs right and i feel like maybe it was just a certain a special time in yeah, portland
3: it was, you know there was you know when there was when there was less of the internet
0: mm-hmm.
3: you know there was certainly more of the interaction Yeah, you know, and 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 I and I, you know, yeah, and I and there's just nothing like that. That That's again, it's that real life stuff, you know, that feeling of, oh yeah, you know, you don't know the tune or that's not the tempo you're comfortable with. I was telling my students the world, you know, I can always play things at your tempo.
0: Yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah, man. Well, and again, just before I pass it to Perry, just thank you so much, and it's it's so cool, like. You're just, you're an artist that when I listen to your stuff, I hear the Northwest, I hear home, I hear Portland. Yeah. When when the pandemic hit, you were the first guy I listened to because you always reinvent yourself. And I realized, I didn't know how long we'd be in this for, but I knew there'd be, we're all going to have to reinvent ourselves a little bit after this. And you were the first guy I thought about, man. And I, again, I just appreciate it. It's so fun having you on high action. I know Perry's got some questions too, so I got to, I want to pass it on to him.
2: Yeah, and you. what a pleasure! What a pleasure it's been to sit here and listen to you talk about your career, about your background, about your artistry, about your teaching. You know, I grew up in the Bay Area, as I may have mentioned to you, you uh, some years back, but was not uh, fortunate to study with you at that time. Although I did have some really good mentors, but getting down to USC, meeting John, kind of immediately he started telling me about you, and it wasn't I think until our first trip up there the. The famous little gig we did <laughs> at the old Jimmy Max, where I got to meet you and, and kind of put a face to all these wonderful stories that I was hearing through John. And uh, over the years, you've just been such a huge supporter of our group, New West, and by association, me. So I really want to thank you for that. You know, if it wasn't for guys like you, uh, Pat Kelly, Larry Koontz, Bruce Foreman, Frank Potenza, Corey Christian, a whole host of guitar players. Uh, you guys really just helped us at some pretty crucial times. I mean, we we always knew when we were coming up to Portland that we could count on you. That you would have a couple amps we could borrow. You
1: <laughs>
0: could I know my, most,
3: my most recent memory of you is you coming in the back door while I'm teaching, handing out a poly <laughs> <laughs> right,
2: Peace. See you later, Dan. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, have a
0: good
2: we always knew we could count on you. We always knew that you would help us get us into a venue, if you if you would, or a contact or something. You know, In addition to what you've done for us, uh, just through those kinds of things, it's also the music you've been producing. Uh, I have a really uh, great memory of after a show in Portland, you gave, uh, gave me your CD Thanksgiving with Gary Versace and uh, Matt Wilson on it. And I, I don't know if John was in the car with me or it might have been one of our other members. Maybe it was Brady or somebody, but we listened to it driving from portland out to eastern oregon where we were going somewhere pendleton and that music and that cd is just stuck in my mind from that drive it's like i have this impression of that music with that area of the country so i just wanted to tell you that that it had a big effect on me and uh, a question that i wanted to pose to you that i think would be really interesting for you to kind of speak on is whenever i've seen you play uh, a lot of good memories seeing you play at jimmy max times i would go up and visit You always bring it when you play, you always play your hardest uh, in a beautiful way, but you have a wonderful ability to kind of get out of your own way to just really be in the moment like you've been talking about. Can you talk a little bit about some of the things that helped you kind of clear everything out of your mind? When it's time for you to hit, when you're on stage, you just tune into that creative force and let it go. Can you talk about being able to be in that zone? You know, there's
3: my, my, one of my favorite quotes, and I, and, I, and I can't imagine that I didn't have snot said this to John or Will at some point, because I always say this at some point. But One of my favorite things I ever heard was an interview with a Japanese woman interviewing Alan Holdsworth. You guys ever heard that? Yes. And she's going, you know, what kind of effects do you use? And he's like, oh, you know, he's got this great British accent, you know. And, and anyway, she goes now, she, and she has this kind of meek, sweet voice, and she says, is it true that you meditate before each performance? And he goes, meditate, more likely I tremble. <laughs> and I always thought, what a great line, Alan Holzer. Meditate, more likely I tremble. Yeah. And I really I look at right. improvising as kind of a prayer state. I feel like when I'm improvising, I'm like in a prayer state. Mm. And I am trying to play from my subconscious. So Miro, the artist, he was trying at different points in his time to paint... Purely from his subconscious. So he was just like trying to go, you know, trying to not really see what he was painting and just kind of let what was behind him come out. And I feel like we're trying to play that a little bit. And so I'm trying to be in that dream state. I'm trying to be in that prayer state. And, it's really,
2: uh, yeah, it's really deep.
3: Uh, you know, and, and just trying to get, you know, so I go to play and there's the fear of failure. There's the excitement of playing. And then there's the trying to get to this, you know,
2: it's so deep, right, the way you talk about it, and, and you know the way I understand it is sort of in that subconscious, but also just being uh, being a conduit for the creativity, for the music that you know you yeah. want to just let it flow through you onto your instrument. In well, way, and that's like, you know, that's
3: what I really feel like is the you know that's that's exactly the word. So I always feel like you know there was a direct conduit you know from God to Mozart, God to Jimi Hendrix, maybe God to Bob Marley. I have something to say that all great artists are probably the same person, right? I mean, West Montgomery might be the same person as Jimi Hendrix. They were, in, you know, in my opinion, or you know, also the same as Stravinsky. You know, that this thing was flowing through, and you can't really describe it any other way.
2: Yeah, you can't. I, I I totally agree with that. Well, I'm and trying.
3: To, yes, I'm trying to open that path. You know, to to complete freedom. I,
2: that's what I've loved about seeing you play. You know, the the lucky times I've been able to stop by in Portland and see you at Jimmy Max. Uh, most of it's been with these guys but that's that's what comes through to me is that you're you're that conduit and you're letting it happen and you know, uh, it's an easy thing to talk about but it's not always an easy thing no to access you know like every gig no. is different sometimes there's challenges on the gig whether it's your sound or i mean these days in new york we're playing some outdoor gigs and there's all kinds of challenges and 90 humidity when you're trying to play outdoors you know there's Always, things you're going to learn on the gig, and that are going to change, whether it's the band or whatever. And um, it's just so impressive to hear you talk about accessing this crucial point of uh, being a conduit and letting the music flow through you. Because, yeah, that's I feel like at the end of the day, that's what we're all trying to do. Mm-hmm. You know?
3: Yeah. Well, that's that's the ideal, and that gets back into emotionalism. Yeah. You know, it gets back into saying something, and I feel like so much in jazz talk and education is. It's not about saying something, and then it's not about being a conduit. It's about being a you know, hip or right player. And, and I think the guys we love are the ones that say something, but that's the hardest thing to teach. You know, it's much easier to teach. Uh, here's, you know, let's do this in 11 with this really hard scale. And it's much harder to go dig inside yourself and, you know, what will move you, what moves you, what, where's, you know.
2: So just to be clear then, you don't meditate. Before you play,
3: <laughs> muddy plays, Well like a rumble, yeah, I know. Uh, probably should. No, I just love to get up there and play. I'm just ready to go play.
2: You well, know? let me ask you a, a rather gear-based question. Just simply, maybe maybe it affects whether this conduit you access it or not. Where where is your action on your guitar? We have to ask.
3: You know, I, to be honest with you, it's you know I think it's fairly low. I guess the guy who works on my guitars you know said and I'm sure this is true of all of us he goes you know everybody who comes in here I'm fussing with everything about their guitars and you just come in and you pick up any guitar here and you just play it and I'm sure this is true of all of us I mean I could play I don't I don't screw around with my guitar most a lot of my guitars I've never had set up
2: Dan thank you so much for making making time for us here it was really just a pleasure to get to ask you some questions and hang with you man so just again thank you for, for being here with us Well,
3: it's great for me and congratulations, I'm so excited, I'm so happy for you.
1: Dan, where can your fans, where can our listeners hear you, see you, keep in touch with you? Uh,
3: well, danbomber.com, mm-hmm. you know, my website, and that's got my email on it. And I think, you know, I'm easily found to be in touch and, and playing around the Portland area. But uh, this you know. has been so wonderful. Thank you guys so much. I,
1: Man, it's our pleasure and more sure. than you know.
0: Thanks again for joining us for another exciting edition of High Action. We'd like to take this moment to thank our sponsors for making this podcast possible, especially those who follow us on Patreon. If you'd like to join us, visit us at www.patreon.com slash newwestguitargroup. There you can subscribe monthly to our Patreon page and get exclusive content from today's podcast. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for all the future episodes. Once again, I'm John Story with New West Guitar Group, and thanks for joining us on High Action.